Hello everyone and welcome to the first Cold Chain podcast of 2021. This is the podcast for professionals working within and those interested in the temperature controlled supply chain in the UK and around the world. My name is Shane Brennan. When I'm not trying to be a podcaster, I am the Chief Executive of the UK Cold Chain Federation. Our members store and move the food, pharmaceuticals and other products that underpin not just important parts of the economy, but supply the goods that make modern life possible. It's been a few weeks since our last show when we spoke to Professor Toby Peters about the cold chain challenge involved in the storage and distribution of the COVID vaccine. It's so great to see how well the cold chain has stepped up to that unique and vital mission in the past couple of months. For all the political drama on going on around them, I know that supply chain professionals are just getting on with the job. As ever, they are the hidden heroes of the piece. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, why not go back and check it out? And while you're at it, check out the many other interesting interviews in the archive. And if you do that, why not hit that subscribe button? That way you'll never miss an episode. So let's get on with today's programme. Over the past couple of months, my life has been dominated much as everybody else's, with either COVID on one hand or the issues of Brexit on the other. And so we've all in the cold chain been adjusting to life outside the EU single market. And it hasn't been particularly smooth for many businesses. Um, And I've been working on government relations activity and talking to the media and helping members with advice on how to cope with the day by day management of our new reality. I've also met a number of really important experts um, who have helped to uh, guide my understanding of the challenges ahead, um, both immediate ones and the ones of the future. And that um, includes Emily Rees, who's my guest today. Um, over the course of the conversation I had with Emily, which I intended to be for half an hour, we ended up speaking for an hour. So I've taken the director's prerogative of breaking this podcast up into two parts. The first part, which you'll hear now, is about the immediate issues of Brexit. How we're coping with things today, why we are where we are, and where we're heading over the coming immediate weeks and months. Then in part two, which I'll post shortly, we talk about the future and the big picture and UK's place in the in the world. It's a really fascinating conversation. It's worth investing the time. So please take part in and listen to both episodes, not just this one. So here's our show. Let's move on to today. And surprise, surprise, we're going to be talking Brexit and all things international trade. I'm delighted to be joined by someone who in these times of hobby trade commentators, yes, I do mean me, is a genuine expert. Emily Rees, welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's a real pleasure. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? So my name is Emily Rees and I'm the director of a trade consultancy called Trade Strategies and uh, a senior fellow with the European Centre for International Political Economy. Brilliant. Um, so you know, genuine expert at a time and probably your, your services and intelligent knowledge and experience has probably never been more in demand than it is right now. Well, let's say that sanitary and phytosanitary provisions in free trade agreements was slightly niche uh, until recently. <laughs> so, Emily, can you just start by giving us a sense from your perspective of where we are right now? Um, how would you summarise the state of trade between the UK and the EU one month into life outside the single single market? Yeah. So, I mean, there's no point going through certain of the difficulties, you know, I think we've all been seeing them, Um, uh, the logistical difficulties right now in getting produce over from Great Britain into the EU and Northern Ireland. What um, this is the consequence, obviously, of uh, the terms of the deal, and uh, they're very unlikely to change for quite a substantial moment of time. So 
Let's indeed hope that these are teething issues, but I think we have to be quite clear. The bureaucracy, the red tape, the administration isn't going away. It's here to stay. And it's going to be about how businesses adapt to that. One of the things that we're seeing in the current situation is um, essentially the European Union imposing um, its standard import controls. What we haven't seen yet is Great Britain do the same thing. So the expectation is that as we move into the phase-in of, of, of the UK's policy in this area, um, we're going to see um, European companies um, get more caught out uh, than they currently are. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that struck me is, I mean, a lot of the dynamic of the conversation we've been having is UK unprepared for Brexit. You know, it's almost a sort of a, a, a definition of things that the UK side, no, not as prepared as the EU side was. And I think that might be true in terms of the institution um, and how the institutions have, have, have prepared for the situation. But when it comes to businesses, I'm not particularly convinced that EU businesses are any more ready or aware of what's going to be required of them to trade into the UK than the UK businesses have been trying to understand how to trade out. I mean, would you would you agree with that? Or do you think it's the EU is in a different place? So I think that's a very fair assessment. Um, essentially, if we look at um, the, the, the economic network that constitutes the single market, most uh, companies are SMEs and they don't export internationally. They um, they commercialize, they, 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 they trade their products within the single market, meaning that any um, move towards an international export um, um, isn't uh, something that they're all prepared for, right? And, and so what, what's happening here with, with Brexit um, and the introduction of the, the trade and cooperation agreement is we're saying to these companies... Well, it's simple. It's just exporting, um, but without necessarily um, taking into consideration that many companies on both sides have never exported before, um, not in the kind of conditions that are required um, now with all the certifications and other administrative uh, documents that are required when, when you export or import. Now, to say that uh, companies weren't prepared um, I think is 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 slightly unfair. Um, we we know that between the agreement that was struck on the twenty fourth of December, the time that the text was released, um, even people who do this all day <laughs> and that read trade agreements all day, it it, it really was quite tedious uh, to run through all the details and not only read the details but grasp what the implications would be. Asking businesses to have that level of analysis um, in terms of the practicalities of what that legal text means for them um, in in the in basically a week, I think, um, was was really not giving a big um, a, a enough time for for companies to prepare. I mean, I, I totally agree with you on that, Emily. I mean, I I spent two years since I got into the Cold Chain Federation you know, talking to government about Brexit preparedness. You know, I was involved in all the meetings. I read the border operating model. I, I helped to draft, well, at least input into parts of the border operating model. But when it actually started to happen on the ground, I was amazed by how much I didn't know. Um, and that was someone who spent a lot of time looking at the issues. For the businesses actually involved in preparing, I just think that, you know, the, that problem was a lot of people thought they might, thought they had got to a level of preparedness, but actually when it actually started happening, there was no substitute for understanding the dynamics as they were actually um, at play. Um, I th think particularly the human factor, and I think this is one of the things that I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on this, but the extent to which it's all down to interpretation. 
what we think is prepared on one in one in one from one perspective might actually not be what's required by the border inspection post or 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 the or the, the food sanitary inspection or the or the inland customs clearance uh, facility that you're you're arriving at all these different dynamics at play i mean how how is that just the the reality of our life now is is, is understanding how to navigate all of those different um, barriers well i mean in a sense it's learning how to in to trade internationally isn't it um and so um, it, it's really about gaining the, the the training, the capacity building internally to understand what international trading means. Um, again, I think coming back to the earlier point, which is that most companies have not had to trade um, under international uh, trade, um, let's say, frameworks because all the market was in the single market, right? So a lot of this paperwork and, and what emanated from the deal in a way was uh, predictable. And it was predictable by the narratives that we'd heard from London, which is that the UK uh, wanted to maintain uh, an independent sanitary and phytosanitary regime. And well, the the, the consequence of that, um, if you want to maintain an independent sanitary and phytosanitary regime was going to be all of these import controls and health certificates that would be required, um, not only um, of imports, but then also, uh, you know, in a, in a in a balanced manner, would a- affect your exports as well. So, in that sense, that part was predictable, and I'm surprised that it it hadn't been picked up by by companies as as being sort of where we would be next. And to your question as to is this how we're going to be trading from now on? Yes, it is. So it's about really now understanding, leveling up, um, understanding how to internationally trade. And that will have a lot of, you know, um, impacts also um, on specific companies. Some will do well and some will not survive. And this is the thing, isn't it? I think the thing that no business was doing, I guess what would have been the right sort of preparation for Brexit was setting up your company in a way or your, or your, and your commercial relationships in a way that was, reactive to be an an import export trade flow which it wasn't in the single market as you've just described do you think that businesses will now go through that adjustment that businesses will actually restructure almost on a legal basis and and physically restructure how they go about doing trade in order to adjust to the new the new dynamics absolutely i mean if there's one thing um that that private uh you know businesses do well is is to adapt right um uh, one one consideration is uh, when we look at the experience from large uh countries that haven't been integrated into uh, strong networks of free trade agreements and that basically have an experience of trading um on these sort of skinny terms as is the case now with the eu and the uk um, what we noticed is that um, they did require quite a lot of uh, significant training uh, to get companies at different levels up to the next, um, let's say, level of exporting um, understanding um, and experience. So um, have you ever exported before, number one? Um, if you have, have you ever established a subsidiary in one of the countries where you're exporting to to facilitate the import on the other side? Do you work with agents? How have you reviewed your supply chain? Are you ready for the regulatory requirements on the other side, which will now become different from your domestic market? Uh, do you split your supply chain? I mean, there are a number of 
real questions and decisions um, that, that come into play. And um, the experience, uh, again, from countries which haven't had um, the chance uh, to be as integrated as the single market um, is that it takes quite a lot of um, uh, time and energy and also, I would say, government-led um, training of uh, companies and then an adaptation of companies from within in order to, to make the best of a new reality. Yeah, I think I think sort of taking that into a supply chain context is one of the things that sort of you know I've been working with mo you know, intensively over the last month talking to members is you know we were used to that integration in single market in practical terms from a supply chain perspective is one lorry carrying the goods of seven or eight different customers through the border and then delivering it to seven or eight different customers on the other side those sort of sort of highly integrated kind of models and highly you know I can order a pallet of this good and get it delivered within two days somewhere else and those economies of scale are possible because of that that is what's falling down and proving pretty much impossible so far for lots of businesses to do so that does mean that in supply chain terms we're really going to be moving to a model that's more like global trade where you consult someone on the uk side brings the product together takes ownership of that product then moves it to somewhere on the other side of the international border who then buys that product and then distributes it onwards. And whether that's literally in, in different businesses doing that or it's the same business setting themselves up in that way, it feels to me like that is going to be the only way to have more certainty and control over your supply chain going forward. Is, is that right, would you say? So the, the question of the multi-product consignments, um, I mean, that one there is just going to make economic sense, uh, let's say, to scale back on, right? Mm. In the same way as using Great Britain as a, a land bridge into the continent. I mean, that we're going to see significant shifts in supply chains because as businesses adapt, you know, not only to the to the costs and um, uh, you know we're talking about rules of origin we're talking about the health certificates we're talking about VAT we're talking about I mean so many elements um, in this export process that of course you're going to try and refocus let's say how uh, you you go about um, um, your how you reorganize your supply chain and, and in that regard I would see that there are going to be two big trends for the UK um, and in that, I'd probably be more detailed in saying for Great Britain, because I think that the case of Northern Ireland really is um, uh, um, slightly apart in this. One, I think we're going to see quite a, a big movement towards reshoring of some produce. So parts of the supply chain uh, which might have been produced in Europe and you can find an alternative um, um, supplier in in the UK, perhaps uh, at a at a slightly more expensive cost, but then with more guarantees that you can get that piece or or, or element or ingredient or whatever it is in your supply chain um, without having any risk of disruption might be worthwhile and and so i think we will see quite a lot of reshoring of, of production certain productions and that will be matched also by another big trend which will be that of outsourcing um in the sense that you will be now that you have to go through a big international trade uh let's say process uh within your supply chain why wouldn't you actually outsource a wider part of your supply chain to third countries, and that might be out of the EU, not within the EU. Yeah, yeah, that's really, it's really, really important. And I think that 
um, with given that we I represent and my members are in that kind of logistics part of it, you know, they don't tend to be the ones that drive that change. It does it does tend to be the sort of decisions being made by those that are either buying or or selling the goods. But I do wonder whether there is an opportunity here for as logistics is, becomes more complicated and it's infinitely more complicated today than it was a month ago um there is more value and more potential for third party intermediaries that have got high levels of specialism and skills and can solve problems to be more valuable in the marketplace so do you see that kind of sort of ability to or that that investment in logistics being a, a potential byproduct of of the changes we've now seen I mean, that's a really good question. It depends very much on which industry we're looking at. Um, if we're looking at the food or pharmaceutical industry, obviously, um, there, are, there are very different dynamics in, in both. Um, but one would expect that where you feel a squeeze um, on the more administrative and regulatory front, um, that's sort of dealing with all these non-tariff barriers, um, specifically with the European Union, that indeed uh, companies will start looking at the bottom line and where they can uh, improve um, certain aspects of the supply chain delivery. Um, and that's where logistics will, will play an important role. But I would also see a restructuring, I mean, depending obviously on the size of the company, um, a, a restructuring also of, of how you go about business, right? I mean, you're going to have to keep track of a whole lot more um, uh, regulations which aren't your own. So do you have an international team that is able to, to do that monitoring, feed it back? Um, um, so... These are uh, the, the, the decisions that were made in, in the bigger companies, right? In the smaller companies, you'll be looking to have um, sort of a core contact point for uh, the person that's going to be dealing with all the brokers and, 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 and other uh, trade intermediaries that will be required in order to ensure that all your paperwork is correct, right? So yeah. uh, in, in that regard, you know, there's always going to be a knock-on effect, but I think it's perhaps too early to say exactly which one it will have on the logistics sector per se. I think you're right. I think, I mean, certainly if you look at sort of retail, retail supply chains, you know, retailers have got used to in the single market essentially saying, just get it to me. I don't care how you get it here. You know, that's your problem. I'll, we'll agree a price and, and you, and, and you get this product to me. Um, what they found, and I think that was some of the attitude, some of the retailers took that attitude into preparing for Brexit, you know, you know make it happen kind of, kind of instructions. I think what they've realized as things have become real in the last few months before the transition and then also once it actually happened was they needed to be they didn't have they couldn't carry that kind of risk they need to sort of feel like they need to take more control over their supply chains which could have quite far-reaching implications for the way they use their parties in their supply chains um or all the alternative is they the third parties that are really good at this will thrive um and those that can't adjust and adapt will will, will go by the wayside um, can I sort of um, ask you, you mentioned Northern Ireland um, and, uh, you know, some really worrying news literally to overnight about some issues at the border posts in Larne and, and Belfast um, concerns and just that overlay of political, over of heightened political tension that goes with everything to do with Northern Ireland is a worry. But just on the specifics of how it's going to work, I mean, that is the area that probably the cold chain members that I talk to have struggled with most in the past month. Um, do you think the protocol arrangements as they're designed are fit for purpose and will survive? I would say that the Northern Ireland protocol um, will stay. So it's it's going to be an interesting uh, time, at least throughout the year, to see 
what waivers can continue to be maintained, but more importantly, what happens when Great Britain starts um, asking for all the health certificates on foods coming from Northern Ireland, uh, catch certificates, phytosanitary certificates, um, but also request that all the produce coming in from Northern Ireland um, enter Great Britain via one of the official border control posts. Just on that last point on the border control post, one of the things that I found quite fascinating is the fact that the list of border control posts for Great Britain um, is still based on a very much an international international trade uh, framework. Um, so they tend to be the airports and the ports, um, but not necessarily have been adapted to date to deal with questions relating particularly to Ireland and to Northern Ireland. Um, so I would expect um, more difficulties on that border, um, but without necessarily seeing any big change in the institutional framework. Ultimately, what will happen is that the supply chain of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland will start integrating um, and you'll see uh, a lesser integration of Northern Ireland with Great Brit- Brit- British supply chains. I think that is um, a pretty... Um, uh, expected outcome, let's say. I think. I think the UK. Go- I mean, talking to government over the last month, the UK government side, um, and also to Dara, but particularly to, to to our sort of Defra and 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 in UK authorities, there's a kind of a hope. I think, underpinning what they're doing, which is that they can agree some 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 smart facilitations, not change the rules, not change the protocol in any fundamental way, but to agree some ways of operating with the officials on the ground in Northern Ireland that will all that will sort of establish some some ways of working that can you know once working in Northern Ireland will prove to be useful to the trade into the south into the Republic of Ireland and then also into the European mainland. It's a kind of vision that, you know, that that this that will be the progression that that, that happens through 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 what happens the best the most optimistic scenario for Northern Ireland dynamics. I think it's quite hopeful to say that because I think that I think that this is a suspicion on the European side is that anything like that is eroding the integrity of the single market and a bit of a backdoor uh, problem. So I'm hopeful. Hopefully they'll write the way the, the the English authorities are looking at it, but I don't think that is. Well, I don't think there's any proof that that's going to work yet. Yeah. I, I would have to agree with that take in the fact that it's perhaps an ambitious uh, uh, scenario. Um, ultimately, the trade facilitation measures that you can put into place um, are, will be difficult to not apply to the EU as a whole. Um, so take, for instance, um, the provision in the agreement that foresees that the EU and the UK may uh, promote electronic certification. Um, the agreement didn't go as so far as to allow for electronic certification, but it allowed that possibility to come into effect in the future. Well, I mean, that type of trade facilitation measure would have to be agreed on both sides as a whole and not specific to Northern Ireland. So uh, how many trade facilitation measures you can put into place to apply to a very specific area of your territory, I think will be uh, quite complex. Um, But I do see a willingness on both sides to see that happen. 
Um, the question yeah. again is that when it comes to, and I think to your point, uh, the integrity of the single par- market from an EU perspective, that will remain the priority. Yeah. Um, so on. So moving on then, that sort of mentality into the conversation, the questions about April, the April deadlines for changing the way the UK, the requirements for in, importing into the UK from the EU, and then the July sort of hard stop on on the facilitations we've got in place. Um, how do you see the UK's mentality to that differing from the way the EU is implementing things on the 1st of January? Do you think they will be very, very different, the, the general approach of the institutions at the border in terms of how they see helping trade flow? That's a really good question. And I think much of it will depend on the government's preparedness, right? So do you have enough um, official vets, for instance, um, at your border control post, say, as of July, in order to really have the frequency of import controls, which you deem unnecessary, right? So um, in that regard, a lot comes down to the UK's preparedness. Now, in terms of the outlook, it it is quite technical. Once it's in the agreement, it's the way it is, you know? Um, I I don't see uh, a question here. I I, I don't think we should necessarily politicize it beyond what is necessary. These are very normal inspections and controls um, in an international trade setting. That was what was um, requested from the British government in in this divorce with the EU. And uh, that's what we'll We'll, 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 we'll continue to see, right? Um, now, yeah. the, the UK might want to um, maintain certain flexibilities in terms of imports from the EU, but I, I think they're going to apply, the, the agenda will be applied um, as set out. Um, I don't see a big divergence from the planning. If you look at the way that uh, the UK has gone about this from the beginning of the border operating model discussions, um, you see that what has been said has gone ahead. So I would say, yeah, listen and trust that what's being said is going to happen. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly. I mean, no business should go into this assuming any complacency around things being eased. I guess I would differ from you slightly that everything about the the way the the, the ministers and, and and officials have carried themselves in the run in to the first of January and since is they they're powered about queues they're powered about 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 shortages and it does feel like for as long as they have to or they feel they have to they will prioritize flow over enforcement um and that could and that that imbalance does worry me because if we are wanting to have quite detailed conversations about pushing the envelope on innovation around technical uh data transfer and, and technical and, and, and uh, IT-based solutions for, 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 for implementing the rules with the EU. Where's the incentive? If it's really easy to trade with the UK and it's really hard to trade for the UK to trade with the EU, that suits the EU, doesn't it? And so why would they get around the table to look at what will be quite some quite tough and quite complex and expensive ways of trying to, uh, to, to make trade easier um, when it's not really an incentive? So, I mean, I think that in the way that this sort of phase in uh, was prepared, it was the right way forward. It was the right call um, simply because uh, the UK would have less, let's say, um, 
market base in order to diversify its imports uh so or or or, you know or to to have an import substitution with domestic firms so in that regard i think it was the right call now I I don't see any facilitation actually happening beyond July. I think that when uh, we reach the May deadline and the, the certifications and the pre-notifications are required, and then when you meet July deadline and the, the phase three, and then you've got the full import controls going through with physical checks in the border, um, border control posts, um, this is going to put EU firms into difficulty. And perhaps that's, you know, the, the starting point to a new discussion on those trade facilitation measures, um, innovations uh, that can be brought through by IT, which are, again, um, outlined in the agreement, but would need to be discussed. So maybe that's when we get to, to, to open that conversation. Yeah, I hope, I hope I hope you're right, and, and, I, and I do hope the UK government does follow through and deliver on the rules as they've been agreed, because that I think is the right that's the right way to do things. And my worry my worry is that you know my worry is just that there's still an out in back of my mind that Sevington Build Facility isn't built, isn't constructed yet, it hasn't finished, there isn't enough people employed yet, um, and they 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 aren't confident that they're going to be able to smoothly implement the rules. So that first July date gets pushed back another three months, um, and then and this sort of Sort of the sort of the the difference between the amount of checks going on and the amount of enforcement you face taking stuff out of the country, UK, compared to what you bring in, will continue to be an imbalance that's being felt by the people on the ground. And I just don't think it's particularly fair. I don't think it feels particularly motivating to see that you're facing all of this hassle and disruption. And yet what you're the stuff coming the other way just doesn't seem to have have the same the same problems. And with that screeching halt, that brings us to the end of part one. Yeah, I've still got to work on those podcast producing skills. But hopefully um, you found that as interesting as I did. You know, Emily's real sort of dispassionate analysis of where we are and where we're heading is exactly the kind of thing that we need to hear right now as we all uh, grapple with the realities of post-Brexit trade. Um, Coaching Federation is here to help. Um, I continue to do all I can to share the information I'm getting from government um, on a rolling basis um, and I'm trying to help in any way I can with people who've got specific problems. So just send them through to me and the team um, and we will uh, keep doing that job for as long as we need to. Um, But in the meantime, um, thank you for listening to part one of our show and um, stay tuned for part two when we get into some really interesting stuff about the big picture and the future of our uh, food and global supply chain. And with that, all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening and I look forward to being with you with part two.